Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of the Middle East, ISIS has, re- has released a new video of the beheading of a U.S. journalist. Plus, POTUS says we don't have a strategy regarding ISIS, but we have one for Somalia. Did the Brits outsmart Washington by taking new efforts to thwart terror threats? What is going on with our foreign policy? Is the situation in the Ukraine more dangerous than the Middle East? Here in D.C., has the GOP lost its momentum for the midterms, or can they continue to hold on to gains in the House? And Harry Reid, why is Washington in the pig pile on top of the Senate Majority Leader? This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. What a week. <coughs> good, good Lord. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox and the former executive director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party. He is Washington Senator Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin, and happy fall. Happy fall. And to my 12 o'clock directly across the table, she is the former House Counsel for Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, the former Obama appointees general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krupp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer and Washington insider. He is a very handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He's the Honorable uh, Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is Washington political operative and bar certified attorney. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here. We are covering breaking news right now coming out of the Middle East. Uh, ISIS has just released within the hour a video which has the, uh, the brutal murder and beheading of uh, U.S. Uh, freelance journalist Stephen Sotlaw. Uh, ISIS, the ISIS group, the, the murderer, for lack of a better term, in the video. Uh, the video titled A Second Message to America. Uh, they basically blame Barack Obama for the beheading of Stephen Sotlaw. Uh, the masked figure uh, who appears to be the same figure from the first beheading video that occurred last week. Uh, states to President Obama, just as your missiles 
continue to strike our people, our knife will continue to strike the necks of your people. Uh, Sotloff, in his statement, says that he is, quote-unquote, paying the price for American intervention in the region. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. This is obviously a very, very huge signal by ISIS and a horrible, horrible uh, turn of events for uh, for journalist Stephen Sotloff. What message can possibly be struck by having this ISIS video done at this time? Well, they signaled that this was going to happen um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So there was a sort of feeling of doom and, and um and uncertainty to this sad, tragic thing. What it does then in a, in a, is it, besides turning our stomachs in a, just a grotesque way, it pulls us together, uh, which is not their intention, but it draws us together to realize that these people are evil and their tactics are so outside any possible realm of explanation or understanding that the American people supported the drone attacks on ISIS. And when we see this happen and we know that they've, they've threatened another, another person, I think a journalist from Britain, um, it, it, it backfires on them. We're all, it, it's a weird way to think about it, but it's the Israelis who are famous for their eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth view. We're all Israelis now when it comes to uh, responding. Dan Lipner, when, when we look at the video and we hear the statement that this is basically directed at President Obama, that his actions for intervention, whether it is the drone strikes, whether it's supporting those who are against ISIS in the Iraqi government. This is a direct finger pointing at the White House and the administration. In, in a situation where the White House has been marginal at best at responding to these types of situations, is it possible that the administration might step up now and take this as a direct poke in the chest? The administration uh, in this case, and I, I agree with Alan as far as the that ISIS is so far outside of the the, the norms of humanity, um, but the administration is actually going. To, ISIS is giving the administration cover to act, and that cover uh, for domestic politics that is uniting us that against this evil um, is going to work. And the the administration is probably going to get a congressional declaration out of this because I can't imagine even the Republican Congress using this as a political tool to bludgeon the president. So in this case, the president is going to act, but he's still going to act with congressional, uh, with, with congressional authorization. But Bob Hines, there, there have been some in Washington that have been saying that this now, with their occupation of northeast Syria, northwestern Iraq, that this has now established them as and armed military combatants, they're acting as a military, they're doing militaristic operations inside the region. There are some that say that now is the time that Congress could act and declare war against ISIS, giving us clear authority without question to intervene and stop ISIS in their tracks. Is there merit to this? 
Well, I think there's merit, merit, merit for that. Absolutely. I don't know if the president will ask for something like that. It's, you know, I don't, it's, it's kind of hard to declare war on, on uh, a terrorist group, even if they claim that they are a country, uh, which they are not. They're just occupying territory. But I certainly believe, as I've heard around the table already, and I think we probably all agree with it, I mean, this is something we know they have other hostages. We know that. And we know that they're going to keep killing them. It seems to me that the thing we should, we should do is launch what I would do. I would literally carpet bomb everything I could find that has an ISIS sign to it uh, in north northwestern Iraq, and I would very quickly be very comfortable in doing the same thing in the northern eastern quadrant of Syria. But Denise, very happy to do it. But Denise Krepp, you know, when we see the beheadings, the, the first beheading video, and there was a huge outcry for America to do something, that response was marginal at best. Is this enough to get even the liberal Democrats on board? Some that have said, look, we've, we've extended ourselves too much, we've extended our military too broadly, we now have to make a decision, and this is now a direct attack on American interests. This is a direct attack on what you just said, American interests. So it's not a liberal Democrat, it's not a hawkish Democrat, it's not a socially conservative Republican, it's an attack on the United States. But what's different today than what happened last week, and this is just on the operational side, is Russia's invaded the Ukraine. So if we declare war on ISIS, what does that war look like? Because there's a little bit of a problem on the logistics side if we do anything more than carpet on them with drones. Well, we've got, we're going to talk about the Russian situation here momentarily, but Alan Moore, with now the second video being released in as many weeks, does this become a wake-up sign for even our Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel, and the Joint Chiefs to come together for a staunch solution to the problem regarding ISIS? Our guys don't need a wake-up call. They have the wake-up call. What's curious about this one is this notion that if you, if you cut people's heads off as a way of executing them, film it and share it around the world, that is going to somehow have greater fear, have us shaking, rather than unite us. I mean, usually when horrible people want to get rid of perceived enemies, those people disappear. We never see them. We don't hear from them. The thing about this is by putting it out there, any, any American, any Western European, any, any civilized person anywhere in the world looks at that, and they're appalled, and they're angered. I mean, that's the irony here of joining, of, of causing us, as these have, it unites us. It, 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 it doesn't divide us. And, and Secretary Hagel, Secretary of State Kerry, and Attorney General Holder have already characterized these groups as unusual threats to us prior to any beheading. It's only the president who over the weekend said, we are safer today than we were 20 to 25 years ago. Hello. We have new capabilities that we didn't have then. But so do the enemies. They are more dangerous today than they were then. Bob Hines. I think there's, I think that Alan is exactly right. They're, they are substantially dangerous to us. 
And I also believe that what we've been talking about is very clear. We, have been, we are much more a united country. I would, I would venture to guess that next Monday evening when the Congress reconvenes, I think, I think it's next Monday evening, I would suspect that there will probably be resolutions on the floor of the House and the Senate to, you know, to asking the president to move swiftly. And I make you a bet there's 100 senators and 435 House of Representatives all saying, yes, we've got to do something about this. Dan Lipner. All right, well, let's pull this back a little bit. Yes, these guys are awful. However, yes, we are all still safer today than we were 20, 25 years ago. Five. No, wait, wait, hold on. No, 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 We are absolutely safer. The idea that, that these lunatics that are halfway around the planet are going to be a true threat to this country, without question, they can cause problems. Um, the the Looking from the perspective of the mosquito, that can be a pretty large nuisance and painful for its victims without question. But as far as being a true threat to our country, come on. Dan, let me ask you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let us tame the rhetoric. Hold on, hold on. Dan, let me just ask you these questions real quick. You have, we know of at least 100 U.S. passport-carrying Americans that are directly involved with ISIS that we have hard intelligence on. These are people that can, as of right now, move back and forth to America with their passport as needed. They don't pose a threat to America. I did not say a threat. I, the, the level of the threat is what we're trying to determine. There are, are literally millions of guns floating around America. There are there are, there are explosives. There are there are a zillion things that are all are threats. The the attack on September 11th was a tremendous wake up call. And mind you, nobody, all people with international passports, nobody with an American passport was was a September 11th attacker. The idea that somehow our country will be brought to its knees by these guys is just not true. Call Tubin. Uh, of that wake-up call, hopefully that <clears throat> the security of the people who didn't communicate in, on September 11th and before, even though they knew something was about to happen, or possibly to happen, which in, in fact did, hopefully they are shoring up their, their uh, system and they are communicating with all the others. Britain. Uh, several, I think uh, a week or two ago, canceled passports of the people that they That was just last week. Last week, canceled passports of the people they knew were were in in, uh, Iraq fighting fighting with uh, ISIS. Uh, The the United States ought to do the same thing. If we know 100 people, we ought to to cancel their passport. So when they arrive to the airport, flag goes up and they're pulled aside and not let get on the plane. Bob Hines. We're not talking about is this could be a worse situation than 9-11. That's not the point. The point is these people are going to try to do anything they can do, and they probably have uh, better and more sophisticated ways to do it than was true a couple of decades ago. Denise Crap. Not only they're going to do it, there's nobody that's going to stop them. I mean, 25 years ago, you're talking about the 1980s. That was the height of the Cold War, the United States versus the the Soviet Union. We each had our little puppets, and we could control our little puppets because we'd make a phone call and say, no, no, is this really in your interest? I don't think this is in your interest. And I say that 
Because when you start looking at the PLO, the Hamas, the, you know, the Badr-Mahai, I mean, you, you've got all of the, the Greek terrorists. They were all financed by countries who you could shut them down if you needed to. These guys, you're not going to shut these guys down. It's not, nobody can shut them down. And that's my big worry right now. It's not a mosquito. This is a play. Oh, hold on. Alan, Alan Moore, then Dan yeah, Lipner. Yeah, the thing that's different here, and, and Denise is, is, is hints at it, is we, we know there are Americans and Western Europeans carrying passport persons. We don't know who they are. We estimate the numbers. We don't know who they are, we, so we can't stop them at the borders. We are estimating, the Europeans are estimating, more than 1,000 from just France, UK, and Germany. These guys are nuts. These guys are happy to kill, and it's the kind of havoc that, uh, that, that scores or hundreds of people who who are nutty and armed and trained? They're not going to knock. They're not going to knock down the number one trade center. They're going to go to subways to sports events. It, this, it, it becomes economic risk and economic warfare. We're not all going to die. Um, we're all just going to have our lives. But it becomes it, it becomes extraordinarily a, disrupted it, by people who are. American passport holders or European passport holders who come here on, on pretty easily, pretty pretty easy access. That's what's different. That's what that's what Holder and Kerry and Hegel are talking about. It's only the president and Dan who see it a little differently. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question, though. I mean, you're talking about an effort that literally is a war of terror being conducted by ISIS. They hate us. They hate the West. Yeah. That, that's why the UK is frightened. That's why France is frightened, Germany's frightened. It, the, all is thinking, oh my God, we've opened up our borders to the passport holders of all of Europe, and there's a thousand guys over there um, who 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 don't know what to do, but they think that if they kill, they will either go to heaven or become manly men and go home. And 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 it's a mindset that we don't understand that's moving west. Carl Tubin. Britain's got a larger problem than most because they have they let these people in. These people have uh, the same people who hate us have have spewed all kinds of anti-Semitism in England, and it's it's all part of the same thing. And and the thing is is that the Brits have identified some of their people and canceled their passports. Why can't well, they, they've, got, they've got probably 500, and they'll probably cancel 50 passports. Right. And, and, and the other problem, I mean, let's be honest, though. The, the British government under Prime Minister David Cameron has done something that our government has not yet done, and that is to invoke stricter security policies regarding ISIS. In a very, very heated debate inside the House of Commons yesterday, David Cameron, during an unscheduled Prime Minister's questions, took a barrage from both Labor and other opposition parties saying, look, we've got a fine line between civil rights and our civil liberties versus what is proper for increasing security procedures. To David Cameron's credit and to the Home Office Secretary Theresa May's credit, they said, we understand this, and we're walking that tight line every day, but our job is the protection of 
British citizens, British nationals overseas, and what we can do to prevent a terror attack on our on our soil. Denise Krepp. Let's be honest. This is David Cameron's worst month ever. You've got Scotland that's saying, toodles after 700 years. You have the Ukraine. And by the way, if we are serious and we're going to go to war with the Russians, it's not just Ukraine that they're going to come through. And if they're going to try to apply to NATO, Britain has got to ante up. So you've got that problem. Then you've got this problem here with Syria and the others. The British government's a little concerned right now. They don't have the manpower, they don't have the people, and they don't have the muscle to be able to do what needs to happen come October 1st. Alan Moore. And, and they have weak allies in Europe. Yeah. yeah. So, but but Europe is at a much greater risk than we are. Yeah. Um, Wait, Europe, I, thought, I thought this was, it was a crazy risk to us. It Europe is, is more dangerous? I'm shocked. Sure. Yeah. It, yeah. it, yeah. it is a crazy risk to us. No. You need to listen to Secretaries Kerry, Hegel, and Attorney General Holder, and then maybe you'll kind of get what they're talking about. But everything we have, the Europeans have in spades. They're geographically closer. They have more of... Uh, They're geographically connected. They, precisely. Well, I, I, don't, I, ne- I don't remember that the UK had a border with Syria, but that's okay. They're all connected over there and, and, and close. And They're geographically close. And, uh, and they've got and, bigger numbers. And of let me, let me just put back. this out into perspective also, Dan. You have to understand one thing. In talking, to, in talking to my friends in Whitehall, their concern isn't so much those that are coming over. It is the homegrown. Britain has a horrible problem of, of kids that were born in England under a strict Islamic family who have taken to Islamic extremism as a way of life who have never left metropolitan London. They are there. They are seeing these videos. They are there hearing the rhetoric. That is a direct threat. No, no, and, and, I, and I hear you. I'm, I'm pretty certain Douglas MacArthur that was killed last week was also not born in Iraq. I mean, we are producing them as well, and that, and that, is, a, that is a legitimate worry. And focusing on exactly who's being produced, apparently we're producing those kind of extremists in Minnesota of all places. And remind ourselves, it isn't just London. Every major city in Western Europe, Paris, has Berlin, the same damn problem. Go ahead, Carl Tuvin. Right now, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the President are on the way to NATO meetings, and I guarantee you, this, along with the Ukraine, this will come up, and hopefully, they'll be able to put together a coalition or something in order to fight this and come back to the United States with a strategy, go to the Congress, or at least discuss it with the Congress. The President said he's been in touch with Congress during this whole thing, and some of the speeches, some of the things that you say will be done. Dan Lipner? Well, before we go too far down this road, let's be careful with our language, that this isn't the West versus the Islamic world. This is the West versus ISIS. There are, plenty, there are plenty of countries, and, and, but I want to clarify that, because there are plenty, plenty of regional actors. The Jordanians aren't pleased. The Saudis aren't pleased. The Egyptians really aren't pleased. So a whole bunch of folks in the region that make this not a West versus Islam issue. It makes it ISIS versus everyone else. That's the issue. But I think, but I think that's, I agree, I agree with that. Right. No, 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 Absolutely. I agree. And, and it, just as, it, as, as watching these beheadings sort of unites us, 
and it's in the, in the Europeans are, are are pulling together, and we'll see what comes out of NATO. Dan is absolutely right that that all of the Middle East is 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 wondering what the hell is going on and and what they can do. It, it it's odd how something so horrible and grotesque, partly because it's gratuitous, it's and it's and it's televised. There's horrible things going on. People are dying every day, but it's not through a beheading on television, through a group who uses that kind of terror as as a way to, if you will, the hearts and minds of these people. I want to say one thing about the notion of carpet bombing anywhere where ISIS is. Unfortunately, it's they, they're doing what everybody does. They are embedding in civilian areas, and the more they know that we're, shoot, we're coming after them with drones, they're not going to sit in encampments out in the desert where we can blow them out of the, out of the water. They're very quickly learning, as they are now in, in Iraq, and will as soon as we go into Syria, which, will, which probably isn't too far into the future to go in there a little bit, um, they will very quickly start recognizing planes, drones, They'll take cover, and one of the places they'll take cover is in civilian communities where if we want to, if we want to bomb them, we're going to have just as, as the Israelis have in Gaza where they try to, to, to go after Hamas, we'll be killing a bunch of civilians, and we're not going to do that. And I, I have a, I'm one who has a lot of sympathy for the president when he said that we don't have a strat- strategy yet. I think he could have been more artful and careful with his words. I agree. It's never very good when your own spokesman in the White House have to come out after an hour and say, well, here's what he meant. But what he, what, 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 what he meant was, we are working on this inside. We're working on this with our allies. We are developing options. And we're going to talk to our allies. And, 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 and that is, you can summarize that by saying we don't have a strategy yet. Or you can summarize that by saying uh, that that this is all very much in process. Lots of options are under consideration. Carl Tuvin. The other thing to remember is that they they have all those uh, tunnels and caves, etc. That uh, that they can hide in. Also, uh, also let me just say that I know this is the next segment, but uh, let me say that. Well, then hold it for the next hold it for the next segment. Hold it hold it for the next segment. Bob Hines. Yeah, I understand what. Uh, my friend Alan is saying about, you know, they're going to be mixed in with, with the local community. But they're a military operation. They're not just a bunch of terrorists. This, these are military organized operations. They're not in everybody's house. They're, in their, they're with their tanks. They're with their, their equipment. As they get on the case, they get, as they move forward, they move, in, they move in military formations. You can get them. You maybe can't get them all, but you sure as hell can kill a lot of them. Go ahead, Denise Kraft. If you're in military formation, yeah, we can think of it. It's going to be when they get to where Alan is and and we start hiding in schools and churches and hospitals. And and that's going to be a problem because do we have the strategy to come back? Because that's what that's going to be. I mean, if if we go there, are we as ready as a country to say we want to go back in? Well, the answer is no. No. The answer is absolutely no. And the Iraqi, but, but, the Iraqi, Iraqi army, armed by a military, could be what we need. Already showed themselves to be feckless. And yeah. but, but we, we, we've 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 already we've already seen what a boots on the ground kind of thing would look like with Israel invading Gaza. The only difference is this is ten thousand times the size of Gaza. And mind you, there are also innocents there. Not everyone has bought into ISIS. 
and to carpet bomb, as, as has been suggested, only creates more of a problem in the region. At a certain point, you have, you, you have to kill this not just by killing, killing the actors, but the idea, and that, that's but a you much longer fight. strategy. You cannot fight an ideal that beheads Americans. You cannot fight an ideal that makes Americans and American interests strategic targets in a military and violent action. It's just not feasible. It defies logic, Dan. The reality is, this is a group that is so dangerous that, number one, along with the fact that they're moving in a military manner, they have very strategic military operations going with heavy military equipment, but a majority of the time, these people don't travel in large brigade-type units they travel in company size units, and when they get to their next target, all of the people in that region all swarm out like ants out of an anthill, and they are part of the attack. It is, it is something that we, as much as we want to put all of our intelligence efforts into, just cannot get our arms wrapped around the mindset of this operation called ISIS. So short of killing everyone in the region, how do you solve it? You, you, you solve it by three ways. You solve it by using actionable, hard intelligence that's triangulated by all of our allies, because this involves all of our allies. You do it using strategic targets. So you're targeting. suggesting we have intel inside ISIS. We actually have bodies inside the organization. I would, I would venture to say that if we don't, we're going to make it a top priority, too. Anybody in the intelligence community, anybody who's been involved in the intelligence community will tell you that has got to be our top priority is to get inside the organization to help us weed out the organization. It being a priority and it being doable are, are different things. Well, a lot of things, a lot of things have... Right. So that was number one, what turned two and three in, in, your, in your interesting plan? So, oh, number, number two is you strategic targeting utilizing drones, utilizing all of our allied support in military efforts. And the, and Which we're doing now in Iraq, but not in Syria. Not in Syria. Yet, and we are still wrestling with that question. But I think the, problem, the thing, the problem that we're having is we are looking at ISIS as a Syria and Iraq problem. This now, especially after today, stops becoming a Syria problem and an Iraq problem it needs to be a head-on focus as an ISIS problem. Well, no, no question that 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 they have they have designs on what they call the Levant, which is the entire eastern eastern Mediterranean, everything from Syria all the way to Egypt, and then east. Um, I was it's a it's an interesting region that that arguably one time existed before all of these artificial boundaries were created. But right now, we have to go where they are, right. which is in eastern Iraq and, and, and uh, I'm sorry, western uh, Iraq and eastern Syria. And, and we've talked about some of the, the, the really difficult operational challenges, not to mention the political challenge that they're talking about in NATO. All right, we've we got to go to break. My producer's getting on me. We're two minutes behind schedule. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion, and we're going to ask about the president's statement last week, we don't have an ISIS strategy, yet today we found out we've been bombing Somalia. That, when we come back from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., 
This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Back in Chile's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your comments and questions at Backroom Politics on Twitter. Uh, we're continuing our coverage of the latest developing stories out of the Middle East, where a American freelance journalist, uh, Stephen Sotloff, has been murdered by the organization known as ISIS. Uh, it is a disturbing video to watch. It is being carried on all the major news networks, and they're obviously showing it without the violence, and it's still very disturbing to see an American on his knees with a murderer right behind him. It's just not a pleasant sight. But with that being said, last week, in before uh, going off to Europe for NATO, uh, POTUS went on a presser in the press room last Friday and decided to talk a little bit with the media about the current situation in the Ukraine and with ISIS. Specifically when it came to ISIS, President Barack Obama said that we do not have a strategy yet regarding ISIS. It has drawn fodder from both sides of the aisle and Congress and a lot of major supporters for Barack Obama have kind of waylaid their support on how he's handling the crisis in the Middle East. Uh, Denise Krepp, when we look at that statement, okay, that has drawn even a backup of supporters such as and including 
Senate Intelligence Committee uh, Chairwoman Dianne Feinstein, who has said that he has not really taken an aggressive action, that he's actually been kind of weak regarding the ISIS situation. That's got to be a wake-up call for the White House. No, I mean, come on, Justin. You seem very honest. Do we have a strategy? No. Are we developing a strategy? Absolutely, they're developing a strategy. The question is going to be, when will the strategy come out? But why would you tell? Why would you tell ISIS on open broadcast TV? Hey, you kind of got us behind the eight ball. We don't have a strategy on how to deal with you. The ball. We clearly have technology to bomb the smithereens. So if we wanted to bomb the smithereens, we would. It's the fact that we don't have a here. We're going to move on Monday at three o'clock. Does not mean we don't have the capability to do what we need to do. Are you suggesting okay. that ISIS is winning the PR war here, Justin? I would. I would say that they're doing a really good job of it, Alan Moore. Yeah. Well, you unfortunately were down in the men's room when we were discussing this earlier, but because because. What, <laughs> Thanks for broadcasting that on live TV. I appreciate that, Alan. That's so sweet. But we but we did discuss it, and I and I, as as I said, I, I have a lot of sympathy for a man saying it, it, we don't have a, a complete strategy yet. We don't have a strategy. Yet. It was he was very inartful in his words and what he should have said. And what the the White House did right afterwards is obviously we're developing a strategy within our own government and with our allies. But it came across in such a way that it looked it, that it looked like we don't have a strategy. We don't know what we're doing, and that was not what he said. That's not what he meant. Um, as I as I said at the very beginning of the show, I was much more concerned about about some of his comments about the nature of this enemy than the fact that 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 he that he would be honest enough to say what most people knew. And none of us know just what the strategy should be either, and we're not hearing about that because yourself, it's, it's really, really hard to know exactly what to do Dan, with this kind of situation. Dan Lipner, and for all this Monday morning quarterbacking on this case, Tuesday afternoon, um, Mike, there's a noble question out there. As far as the CIA intelligence, what did we think about ISIS before they had their great military victory against the Iraqi army? I'm going to guess we didn't think much of them. We thought they were probably a nuisance in the region prior to this seeming upset victory against the Iraqi military now being incredibly well-armed and, and taking a serious position as a player in the region. Carl Tubin? Uh, first of all, uh, Diane Feinstein also said that the president is very thoughtful uh, and very careful as to uh, what he what he says and does. Now, he, he was an artful in the statement that he made. It could have been done differently, but uh, uh, she she complimented him on 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 that situation, saying he's very thoughtful. He wants to think it through and then come up with a strategy. He'll do that with with his with Dempsey, with Hegel, with Carrie. Uh, 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 Carrie. Go ahead, Alan Moore. It wasn't quite what, he, what she said. She didn't take him to task for his statement about not having a strategy. No. She did. It was really a separate thing. She did compliment him for being a cautious and careful man. But when pushed, she said, I think in this case, he maybe has erred on the side of being too cautious. Not about having a strategy, but too cautious. And that's what made the news. Because she here's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee saying... The, the president has been overly cautious here. That's part, that's part of the debate, but she wasn't, at the same time, she didn't say, here are the four things he needs to do. It, what, what's really interesting is how the, the, the president has 
shall we say, in different, in, 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 has disappointed members from across the spectrum. Bob even Hines. Though, even though it's not clear what everybody... Yeah. Bob Hines. The, the way the president said what he said about not having a policy was very unfortunate because strategy, strategy makes it look foolish. But I'm sure that the, every intelligence operation, the CIA, uh, Defense Department, uh, our ambassadors and all over the world, every, everybody is involved in pulling together some a, a strategy. There are so many moving parts in the Middle East. You've got, you've got several different kinds of, 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 of Islamic groups that are not crazy nuts, but they are very antagonistic toward each other. And there are all kinds of loose groups that are much more ant pricks than, than ISA that are running loose. ISIS. ISIS. So we don't want to confuse no. them with no. Chairman ISA. Okay, <laughs> big, big, big difference no, no, no. here. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, big difference no, here. But I think the president is wise to get as many, get as much fixes on the information as he can get and talk to as many allies, both in the area and in, the, in, the, uh, in Europe, because obviously this is not something that is going to be easily handled, quickly, quickly destroyed, and gone for good. It's going to be a very difficult fight. And you can't do it just by jumping on top of Agreed, them. agreed. But Dan Lipner, this then, going off of what Bob is saying, this then becomes another optics issue for the president where it's not so much how he's doing it, it's just the way it's being presented to the public. That's the problem. Would you agree? Sort of. As, okay. As, as far as the visuals go, and that's unfortunate, the unfortunate nature of the, the, the current media age that we're in, that looking good doing something wrong is more important than looking bad and doing it right. And the, the, the president, we, we don't know what the right answer is. We've all kind of reached that consensus at the table, and we've also reached consensus the president looked bad in saying we're trying to figure it out. And, but that process of figuring out is going to take some time, and I think we're in agreement there. There needs to be an action taken. Is it strictly by us? Probably not. Is it going to be with other regional actors? Hopefully. Is it going to be with con with congressional approval and buy-in? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but one of the questions, Alan, that comes up is if this is an issue of – and there are many inside the Beltway that are saying that the president, again, is showing his ability to make this academic versus operational. He might be overthinking it in some ways, which I don't necessarily agree with. At the same time today, the Department of Defense and the White House announced the fact that we just took military action in Somalia against the Al-Shabaab organization, which came out of the blue, out of nowhere, particularly when we have a situation that is creeping even closer to an international threat like ISIS. Does that make sense? Of course it does. Absolutely it does. Remember, I mean, Al-Shabaab is another horrible group of people who are creating massive disruption and summary killings and terror throughout East Africa. And we obviously saw an opportunity to, to, to take out the head. I don't think we got him. But sometimes you go with the best thing you got. We, we were not 100% sure that we were going to get Osama bin Laden when we went in there, but we went in there when we were ready. We're, we, we've been after Al-Shabaab for years. 
One of the things I, I was just reflecting on, though, in all of this is, is that we, starting in, in a very big way in 2002, when we went into Iraq, we said, you know something? Not only are these guys bad guys and Saddam is the sworn official enemy of the United States, but they are ready for us. They will welcome us, and we are going to make Iraq the exemplary democracy in the Middle East. How did that work out for us? When during Arab Spring, we had Mubarak, who was, who was an autocrat with the military behind him, uh, but who also had come to peace with Israel and, and was our, you know, someone we could work with. We said, oh, yeah, get him out. Let the democracy come in there. How's that work out for us? In just about every one of these cases, let's let, let's let Assad go. Oh, uh-oh, um, he's still there. And in Libya, um, when we led from behind and then we leave, um, all of these new democracies aren't working out. And it really is something else that I'm sure the White House, the President, the State Department, the Defense are thinking about. Like, what we don't want is new unintended consequences. Not only is it a tough enemy, but what are, what's, our, what's our long-term plan? Because Bob, the short-term plans are not working out. Bob Hines. This house about this is not something that the president started to do something last week. I, have, I suspect he has had intelligence work going on a better part of a year in order to identify where the guy spends most of his time, what his schedules are. He has, they have to get as close to knowing for sure, and when they think they do it, they made a move. It could have happened two months ago. It could have happened two months from now. But they had a shot at him, and they took it. They did the right thing to do. It has nothing to do with anything else except that. But let's, let's think about this for a minute. There are so many different – Alan made a good point. You know, trying to make democracies in a part of the world that has no concept of what that means is all but impossible. Hassan Hussein was a much better leader of Iraq, of Iraq from our standpoint than what we got now. The Shah of Iran was a much better leader of, of, of Persia or Iraq, of Iran, than what we got now. I mean, when we start running around trying to plant democracy ideas in the heads of people who don't even know how to spell the word and don't have any idea what it means to have a debate like this around the table without shooting each other, how can you make possibly, in a couple of years, make them become Democrats and, and Republicans and work on a normal Democrat, Democrats? And you cannot do it. Dan Lipner. Well, first let me say I'm glad to see that everyone eventually comes around my way of thinking and the show is recorded. <laughs> Note that I've said this exact thing, that we're not very good at this as far as when it comes to inter interacting with other people's government. That being said, but Alan mentioned something that should be, we should think about. As far as not necessarily that we're going to do something. Be silent. Why? My wife just that. Me. Nope, we're... Keep going. And, uh, I'll keep going. So when, when, Alan, when Alan mentioned uh, the going after uh, bin Laden, there are a bunch of different ways that we could have gone after bin Laden. And instead, what was done was sending special forces in surgically to a compound in Abbottabad and taking him out. There were people that suggested you could have, you could have bombed, you could have done other things. And I want you to play forward what the Pakistanis would have done should a building had just blown up, done by us, in their territory. 
there may have been consequences to that beyond what occurred. There were still consequences sending in the, the special operations team to take out bin Laden. But that being said, those consequences were so much less than what they could have been had, had it been a far less surgical approach. So saying that the president is being careful and how he's going to approach this, I think is just fine. I, well, I, the, the argument is that in a time when we need an operational president, somebody who gets his hands dirty, somebody who gets into it, it just seems, at least from the perceived view, that this is, again, and this is not a new criticism that's of not, the president. That's not the issue, Justin. What, what, what you're suggesting is, and I don't blame the interest that people want that that to respond to an eye for an eye with that, that lustful passion of destroying the bad guys. But in government where there, is, where there are consequences in a, compli- in a complicated world, you just can't do that. I mean, I, then I he's crap. the attack is, is a smart maneuver because you know, when, you, when you say terrorists, it's not a one entity. You know, it's multiple entities. I mean, so you've got ISIS, you have Hamas, you have, um, you've got Al-Shabaab. I mean, let, let's go through the list. And, and Al-Qaeda. But what you don't want is for one to come up and the other ones to think you're ignoring them and say, aha, let me, let me you know, do a couple of little, you know, silly things and, you know, and, and let's create some mischief. So I think, you know, if we're focusing on them at the same time, recognizing we have limited resources, it makes sense with what we did today because it cuts them while they rebuild and we go after ISIS. Well, let me, let me throw a wrench in the works here, though. You know, it, 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 what it does is, and just throwing this out as opinion, is it allows other world players, in one case, North Korea, the CNN interviews that they did yesterday with the American prisoners in Pyongyang were nothing short of a poke in the face to the American government. They're now calling the shots because they see us as somewhat overstretched and overcommitted in the Middle East. This allows other world players to take a poke at us. That's not what normally would happen in traditionally with us. Even in the height of the invasion of Iraq and the involvement with al-Qaeda in, in, in Afghanistan, we were able to keep isolated North Korea and keep them and keep them somewhat at bay. But this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the hour, which is are we safer today than we were 25 years ago? And my no chance. Is no, no way chance. because we have so many hotspots. I mean, when the president came in six years ago, there were X number of hotspots. That now has multiplied. And, you know, the folks that are going to behave badly are going to behave badly until we start corralling and closing off some of these hotspots. Carl Tuvin. The big problem. We have a big problem. We have a big problem today. But the, the, the overall problem is that a lot of people in the Arab world do not like this country. We had Osama bin Laden. Now we have ISIS. And you're going to have, in the future, other groups coming out of different areas that are going to feel the same way and are going to garner, garner the same kinds of actions that these people are doing. So we need to be prepared for 25 to 50 or more years of situations like this. Bob Hines? 
there are so many problems in the world, and some simmer, and some boil, and some boil over. And, you know, there's no way that you can, uh, the United States in any country, could deal with every one of them all the time. What North Korea did was took, took advantage of, a, of an opportunity when a lot of other stuff is going on that is keeping the Western world extremely busy. Um, they took a shot. They took, Dan a, Littner, they took a PR shot, let's yeah. be clear. Yeah, that's right. There's no sign of, no. of the North Koreans no. encroaching no. in South Korea. No. There's, it's exactly. just not happening. It's so, just a smart-ass move. Right, and in and, 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 and yeah. the, the world of PR, fine. Yeah. Now, if this is something substantive, yeah. when they start, if they actually start moving troops, that's different. then that's something else. But the fact but, of the matter is, it's a PR piece. We are much more, we, we have much bigger problems to worry about right now. Obviously, you want to keep an eye on it. If they don't, if they move, that's a different question. But as long as all they're doing is what they're doing right now, there's a whole lot more problems in the Middle East that are seriously loose, and they're not under control at all. Right, and that's the thing. And but continuing on your point, why are they all our problem? Uh, at, at the end of the Cold War, uh, our, our NATO allies seem to have taken a little vacation as far as underfunding their portion of the alliance. Um, and now there's going to be this 48-hour strike force thing, which I, I will be surprised if that actually comes into being anytime in the near future, considering of the the less than effective response NATO had with uh, Libya a few years ago. So this is going to be an interesting thing, but I don't think we should be footing the bill for this international threat as though it's just us as the only international police in the block. Gee, Dan, what do you have against vacations? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's our turn. Carl Tuven. Dan, basically, it's still in our responsibility because we've done so much of the leading since the Second World War. And people still look to us as, as the leaders in all this. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, Germany has started to step up now and do some things. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much they're interested in ISIS or if at all. But, you know, that's, that's been the main reason. There used to be a conversation in this country prior to the end of the Cold War something called the Peace Dividend that lo and behold, all this money that was being spent on the military was going to somehow go into other things in our country. Mysteriously, our, our European allies did actually transition their budgets to actually build their infrastructure and became economic giants again. We have, there are costs, not, not just military, not just lives, but actual financial costs. And other folks can pony up some of the bills for this. Denise Krapp. One of my concerns right now is that, you know, and I'm going to go back to the North Korea example. I'm not necessarily concerned about them. They remind me of a five-year-old sometimes with an older sister who's getting a birthday party, and the five-year-old's really upset that they're not getting attention, so they throw a temper tantrum. That, to me, is North Korea. What is concerning, however, is China. Um, because while we are focusing right now on Syria, and we're focusing on Iraq, and we're focusing on Ukraine, China's doing some really interesting things um, in the South Pacific Sea that could come back and fight it. Um, the claiming of additional territory and their rufflings of those right now with the Japanese and the Koreans. 
So that's the five-year-old I would if, watch if, out for. North Korea, not so much. I, wait a minute. If, if you're if you're saying that that China is is a bigger issue now than Russia, not saying they're a bigger issue, but they're doing things under the radar that we're not paying attention to because of the limited yeah. bandwidth that we have as far as being able to act. We're paying more attention right now to Russia because of what's going on in Syria. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that in the next segment, but go ahead, Dan no, Lipner. But to Denise's point, the Chinese are also spending a great deal of effort investing in their own infrastructure in Africa because they're seeing that, that there are resources there and to establish their own loggerhead of actually getting involved with local governments there, not just militarily, but on finance. They're also in South America. So I think China has a con, considerable, considerably larger long-term threat. Right now, we've got to deal with Russia, which we weren't expecting, and we'll talk about. But, yeah. but long-term, yeah, the the uh, the Russians have the resources, and that's what that's what um, and, yeah military, and, and military resources, military yeah. and economic, and Russia doesn't. Well, we're going, to, we're going to keep an eye on the ISIS situation as well as the developing story coming out of the Middle East regarding the, uh, the murder of freelance journalist American Stephen Saltloff. Obviously, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family and the friends of Stephen Saltloff. Uh, cannot imagine what they're going through right now. But uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the other front that we're dealing with, that being Russia. Is Russia a bigger threat to us right now than the Middle East. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in four minutes. Stay with You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back from Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio for our second hour. Uh, we've obviously spent the past half hour talking about the, the very disturbing video coming out of the Middle East, the murder of U.S. freelance journalist Stephen Sotloff. Uh, they've also in this video paraded a British freelance journalist that has uh, also been taken hostage. He is the next target, and that is a direct message to, apparently through various sources, David Cameron and the British government. But we'll keep an eye on that. There's another front in Europe that is also of concern. Uh, over the past few days, uh, the Ukrainian government in Kiev has accused the Russian government of an actual invasion occurring in the eastern uh, provinces of Ukraine. Uh, this has started a war of words as well as increased fighting between Russian separatists uh, loyal to Moscow and Ukrainian government forces. Uh, President Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, has come out and denied any sort of, any sort of Russian government involvement inside the Ukraine. However, several international journalists have observed what they call Russian military operatives involved in supporting the Russian rebels inside the Ukraine. This has now sparked a huge point of contention, which will be a source of discussion at the upcoming NATO, uh, the, the upcoming uh, NATO meeting that is occurring this week. President Obama left this afternoon on Air Force One to uh, meet with the other NATO leaders and their counterparts, and this is going to be a discussion that's going to be ongoing. But the question has come up by several, uh, several academics and several inside the Beltway. Many think that Russia and the Ukraine is the new fearful front to our national security, even more so than the Middle East. Start with you, Alan Moore. Is there merit to that discussion as far as Russia being more dangerous situation than the situation perhaps with ISIS? Well, it, it... <laughs> How do we measure danger? I mean, there's a there's a there's a greater immediate economic danger that the Russia Ukraine uh, uh, conflict poses to Europe. Um, they who rely on uh, on natural gas from Russia it passes through Ukraine. Ukraine totally relies on it. 
Um, and and so in that regard, there's there's a much greater potential economic impact, at least right now. The Russians have have, uh, have imposed a, a a blockade against all European foodstuffs, about 14 billion dollars a year worth of imports into Russia, uh, having a huge impact on lifestyles of at least uh, middle and upper uh, middle class and upper folks, upper class folks in in uh, in Russia. And a lot of everyday stuff comes in. Um, we don't export that much food, but they've cut off about a billion in, in, in U.S. The Europeans of U.S. exports, the Europeans appear to be on the verge of, an, of announcing another new set of sanctions on technological transfer and access to investment income for a whole host of, of Russian industries. So that's going on on the side and then here's this conflict i don't you know it's not a nato or ukraine not a, a nato member uh we are not required by treaty to go in which isn't to say we would um but but uh it is so disruptive in such a key place and russia has intentions we don't fully understand. I don't think we've totally accepted the notion that Putin is crazy. Um, so I think there's still this notion that he's messing with us um, to see how much he can provoke us, but it's hard for me to see the end game here. But Dan Lipner, we're talking about a Russian president that is a former senior KGB operative. He is a Russian president that has invoked a huge sense of nationalistic pride or nationalistic sentiment inside Russia. Uh, his popularity numbers with the millennials are off the charts. Some have him as high as 72% popularity amongst the millennials and the younger crowd inside Russia. It seems that whatever the message that Vladimir Putin is putting in Russia, he's garnering the support of the key disposable income demographics that any state leader would love to have. Well, that, that, that's an example of what happens when you don't have a free press. Um, as, as far as what, what Putin's doing, uh, he, he's kind of lost control of the situation and now put himself in a bad position. A few years back when, we, when uh, Senator McCain said, we're all Georgians now, uh, when, when uh, Russia in, invaded Georgia, and what was a, a geostrategic political coup on their part that put Russia back on the map as a power player and the West did nothing. This, I believe, was an attempt to do the same sort of thing but got, a, got out of control. The, the Ukrainian separatists that have now been armed shot down a, a commercial airliner that there's now talks of secession. Russia clearly does not want eastern Ukraine as part of the Russian territory. So the question is, what to do about this and whether or not the Europeans will keep their strong position once winter comes and the same natural gas uh, pipelines become significantly more important for, for winter. But at, as far as Putin being an irrational actor, I'm not willing to go that far. But Bob Hines, when we look at Putin, I mean, I would agree with both Dan and Al that Vladimir Putin is by no means crazy. What he is is very pro-Russian. What he is, is trying to establish a Russian presence as a superpower yet again. 
it, it seems that those actions have brought him some internal conflicts that he's managed to control with some very astute political and media prowess. But does this stop Putin as far as establishing himself as a self-proclaimed superpower once again, where they might have been third or fourth before? Well, recently, in the last week or so, he has been using a phrase that I cannot say, a Russian word that means the, the, you know, the greater Russian homeland. That's what he's talking about. He's, he's, he's acting, I think what he's trying to do is in, imbue his, his citizenry with the fact that Russia is great again. It's like the days of the czars. And uh, we have, uh, we have uh, taken steps to protect our, our Russians who are not living in Russia. And we are, we are going to be a great power. Uh, this is, I don't think that's, I don't think he's a megalomaniac. I think he's a very astute, dangerous enemy because I think he's a smart guy and uh, he is, uh, even what he's done with this incursion or invasion of, um, of the, of, uh, of Ukraine, he is still, you know, you can't pin him down and say, look at all these Russian troops or all these Russian airplanes or whatever. But he's doing something over there more than he was doing 10 days ago. He's also denied that there are Russian troops there. Yes, he is. Yep. He's, denying that he's denying what on the ground is obvious to people, apparently. Carl Tubin. So, also, also the, uh, some of the Russian troops have been uh, captured by the uh, <clears throat> Ukrainians and have said we're Russian troops. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the thing that we all have to remember is that Putin did not like the fact that the Russian nation was broken up and, and some of their the satellites went independent and he really would like to bring all that back together again now uh, how he can do it without occupying or whatever is, is interesting and this is the thing that we have to worry about the most but he really wants to put russia he wants to put all the pieces back together again denise crypto when when we look at vladimir putin one would say Looking at it from a Russian perspective, hey, he's doing what any other great leader would do, and that is to try and make his country the best country in the world, the, the dominant superpower. When he went into Crimea, there were many who argued that the U.S. would have done the same thing to, perfect, to protect its national interests, i.e. the naval base in uh, Sevastopol. There's an argument that's saying, look, why are we blaming Vladimir Putin for his actions. He's just doing what would be expected. Well, okay. Yeah, historically, has the United States done something similar? Absolutely. We have. So we, Texas. Yeah, Texas. Um, but, <laughs> that, was a, that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Iraq. <laughs> Manifest destiny but, in general. But, <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> I'm going to go back to what Bob said, and, and this is what's true for a lot of people, is when you start talking about the, the Russian homeland. Does that mean Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania? Does that mean hard... Uh, Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's what's making people a little twitchy right now. And I have some memory for that because, you know, what is the risk calculation that he's doing right now? Is it, okay, I got away with it in Georgia. Nobody really kind of slapped my hands a little bit in Ukraine. Europeans are sanctioning me. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not really thrilled. But you know, at what point in time does he stop? And, and that's what concerns me about Putin. 
I don't know when he stopped. And I'm not convinced that he knows when he wants to stop. But Dan Lipner, it also seems a little bit uh, questionable that Vladimir Putin would do all of this at a time when the Russian economy is in a very fragile state. Uh, the Russian ruble has almost zero economic value. Uh, this doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint to continue to bring more economic sanctions against an economy that's already unstable at best. Well, and if you want to play this forward to something to be really scared of, what if the Russian government collapses? With these economic uh, disruptions tend to precede governmental disruption. And while there's no evidence of that at the moment, Heaven forbid there is. The Russian economy has been teetering for a while. Their, their oil wealth, which showed up magically uh, when the oil prices spiked, and lo and behold, they discovered they could start drilling uh, in Siberia. That is no longer true. And looking down the line a year, two years, five years from now, and with these sanctions going in place, with a Vladimir Putin that is not backing down, uh, what is, seems to be the obvious economic interest, what happens next? But they're not going to do it. I mean, that, that is some irrational actor. You know, and we're not playing with rational actors right now. I mean, when you said, why would you do this? I'm thinking Argentina in 1982. They went to war against Britain to hide what was going on in their own country. Did they win? No, they lost. But it's a gamble. And it's a gamble I think Putin's doing right now to hide things that are going on in his own country. But it's working because, as you talked about, Justin, he's getting the support from the demographic that's going to actually get shot. If the 18- to 22-year-olds are going to support you and go to war happily and salute you, you keep doing it because what their parents are saying they're going to ignore. But it almost seems, it almost seems uh, Carl Tuvin, that in this case, Vladimir Putin is literally putting the economics aside, almost thinking in a way that the economics will take care of themselves we have large, powerful oil interests such as the international conglomerate Luke Oil, which is expanding on a daily basis. This will all settle out. It's a bubble. It, will, it is cyclical. Don't worry about it. What we've got to worry about are our national security interests. Well, you're worried about national security interests. <clears throat> the thing that um, uh, Dan brought up, which is very serious, but right now he is, he is top person. He's high in popularity. Uh, and he, the Russian people are very happy with what he's doing, uh, and, and that's that's a problem. As long as he has his popularity, uh, he's going to start doing these things. And if the popularity starts to, to fall, <clears throat> that's when the danger point comes, because that's when he might decide. Well, I've got to get this popularity back up. I'm going to attack somebody. But, but this is a guy, but Alan Moore, this is a guy in Vladimir Putin who said, look, you know what? I'm coming out of the public eye. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be uh, prime minister, and then we're going to let Medvedev, the predecessor to Vladimir Putin, be president, and he's going to be the front man. When he didn't exactly do exactly what Putin said, Putin came back in a show of force and took back over. One would argue that, well, Putin's done what he what we expected him to do. Well, he certainly it was it, it was always clear throughout the Medvedev period that that that, that Putin was was the controlling the more powerful figure. Um, he he is 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 a, 
is a riddle for us because he, you know, at one point he desperately wanted to be a member of the G7, making it the G8, which it was for a while. He was, he didn't really qualify, but we let him in because they they got they got as many nukes as we do, and they got all this oil and gas, and they could create havoc on their borders. Um, he has said, as Carl noted, that the breakup of the Soviet Union was one of the great tragedies of the 20th century. He knows he can't put it back together, but that doesn't mean that he can't work around the edges, especially where there are ethnic Russian populations. And that's what he's got in eastern Ukraine. The, the Crimea case was both Russians and, and some military interests, because that's their... Uh, that was always the the, the Soviet, warm water the, port, the Soviet Mediterranean port, um, and and yet um, the 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 stuff in the Ukraine. I'm guessing also, and this is it, it, it probably grotesquely uh, misunderstands what's going on, but it's almost like he enjoy, takes a perverse pleasure in tweaking everybody else. Let's poke them. Let's poke America. Let's poke Europe. They're all know-it-alls. Um, they, they've got these built-in advantages. We've got the we've we've got the, the the gas, and so we've got some leverage. And they're afraid anyway. Let's test them, test them, test them, test them. Um, and but I but I'm remembering with his popularity. I'm, I'm remembering the first President Bush, Bush 41, uh, George H. W. Bush, his popularity right after the Iraq War when he when he went in and we and we we pushed. The, uh, the Iraqis out of Kuwait and restored Kuwait. He, he had sky high popularity, and what happened? He lost to Bill Clinton. That's I mean, these, why we got Bill Clinton? These, 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 these popularity things, and God knows how, what kind of polling they do in 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 Russia. I'm not saying he's not popular. I, I but all I'm saying is that all this stuff is is tenuous. And as Denise points out, if these young guys who think he's so great um, start uh, start putting on uniforms and going to war and coming home in body bags, and if their parents are seeing that, um, and if there's nothing in the stores like there never used to be long ago, um, and if they're isolated and have more trouble traveling and don't have disposable income, popularity is, is a very, very uh, transient thing. Denise Krepp. I mean, I, I can remember the days of, of East Berlin and, the, you know, when you would go to the company store, and it was truly the company store. It was the communist store, and that's where you would get the Western goods. The problem is that for the past 20 years, you've had a society of Russians and others that have gotten used to Westernized goods. Now, if those goods go away, the question is, will they continue to support us? And I, I'd, I'd be very curious to see the relationship between pricey um, foods, Pricey clothes. Go for the shoes and the handbags, and see how long you have it. There's a direct correlation. So, so the Prada Gucci market is going to determine the success of the Russian economy. Denise, I'm glad you said that, and we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 I am. I, I, and the Chinese knockoffs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can remember going to the stores, and you would see them. You'd see one. And it was sort of like what everybody wanted because it was so hard to get. And that's what's about to happen. 
you're not going to be able to go to your big malls, which is what they built. I mean, when the Russians became more open, they built malls just like we did. And you'd go in and you'd shop. If the women can't go shopping, the children can't get their clothes, and the men have wives who are very upset, things are going to change. And there's not $14 billion of food in to uh, love having access to and to eat? Um, but, Bob Hines, we're also seeing a situation, I mean, understanding what Denise is saying, we're also not at a point where there are concerns that we're going to see Russian toilet paper lines in the middle of the winter in Moscow anymore, either. No, but it would be nice to see what comes out of the meeting of the uh, NATO meetings uh, in, in Wales. I'd like to see, it sounds as though uh, Chancellor Merkel, is uh, is willing and prepared to, and they're the biggest Western country that negotiates that, that you know sends products over to Germany, uh, all over to uh, Russia. If if we're willing, if the NATO countries are willing to stand in there and and put more vigorous, painful sanctions, we can uh, we can change a lot. Now, one other thing too. One of the things we ought to be thinking about, and this goes right to what Britain is able to do, you know, London is about the biggest financial place in the world next to New York. And if they just put a little pinch on Russia, that would be the most fundamentally dangerous thing that could possibly happen to the Russian economy. I wouldn't say it would, it would implode, but it would certainly damage it a lot. They wouldn't have to just stop everything, but they, if they would just start pinching Russia, it would be very important. Carl Tuvin. Merkel decided uh, a few days ago that they would send armaments to the Ukraine uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to have to fight against uh, the Russians. Now, many people in Britain are probably looking at this and saying, oh, my God, are they going to start to build up again? Are they going to start to, to do uh, military things again and all that? I remember very, very, uh, remember very well. When the day that it was announced that the two Russians were coming, the two Germanys were coming together, uh, Alan Harriman, who was a Winston Churchill daughter-in-law and spent a lot of time with him during World War II, was apoplectic, thinking that the two Germanys would come together because they were going to, they, they eventually would regain their strength, etc. Hopefully that isn't going to happen. Hopefully that Merkel is cooperating uh, with with uh, with uh, the United States and other countries in, in helping with the Ukraine, and maybe they can even do something in the Middle East. Dan Lipner. Well, however, we kind of want a stronger Germany in this case, and and Merkel is worth noting of East German descent. She's seen what the communist bloc was, what the old regime and potentially new incoming flood will be. So I'm more curious as far as uh, the German thought and the Poles thoughts on an aggressive Russia than I am about our own thoughts on this. And those are two countries that really not only know the threat, but lived it. And it would be nice to see what comes out of that meeting out in, in, in Wales. Absolutely. You mean Estonia? To Estonia. Estonia. Oh, I'm sorry. Estonia. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. Also, remember that the Germans have not forgotten uh, what uh, Russia, when they attacked Russia and then got defeated, they're not, they, they're still flinching for that. Well, but 
we bring up the, the meeting of NATO and Estonia, uh, Alan Moore, was having the NATO meeting in Estonia almost a sign to Vladimir Putin of saying, hey, look, we're aware of what's going on. Be very careful in your actions. Was this a shot across the Russian bow? I don't think it was a shot across the bow. I don't, I don't, I don't remember when the, 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 the date and place of this was set. Um, so I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't speculate too much. But they, they know that, that, that the West sees this stuff as very serious uh, problems. Um, they know that that uh, NATO is not nearly as strong militarily as it once was for reasons that Dan talked about before, where we we kept our troops o- over in Europe, we continued to buy advanced munitions, um, we created a peace dividend, and they took vacation with it. Um, so. So it's it's useful that that NATO is uh, that the, the the stronger countries in NATO, um, the wealthier countries are beginning to realize, oh my God, we're not going to be able to ride on the back of America again. And this stuff really does matter to us. Um, what do we do? And it forces them together. So what a, what a great meeting it's going to be. You know, we're going to spend some time talking about about the Ukraine and Russia, and then we're going to talk about about the Islamic State and what's going on. I mean, we'll talk about a downer. If people are thinking, <laughs> let's go to a nice resort and have some fun. Yeah. Like, not this time, folks. This is definitely not, not beach time. blanket bingo time in Estonia. Not, not, that there's, not that there are a lot of beaches you could have beach blanket bingo on in Estonia, but it is a beautiful country. Uh, with that, I'm going to let that be the last word. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of the national political things that have popped up. Harry Reid's got himself a little pig pile on top of him here in Washington. <laughs> That's our tribute to Alan Moore. And the GOP might be losing ground in establishing a foothold in the House of Representatives. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee it. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to talk a little domestic politics here because that's kind of what we do here on Backroom Politics here in Washington, D.C. There's an article today in Politico that talks about the big stronghold that the GOP had in the uh, in, in, in the House of Representatives and the large gains that were expected by the GOP in the House, it seems like that has slowed down quite a bit. Uh, Alan Moore, start with you. Do, do, does that seem logical? Does there seem to be merit to that? Is the GOP losing steam in Congress as a result of all the things going on? Well, I think it's not, I don't know about losing steam. I don't know that it ever had built up a huge head of steam. Everybody recognized there was a great opportunity uh, for uh, for Republicans to gain control of the Senate because the president's not popular, the economy is struggling, and the uh, the Republicans uh, avoided picking some of the truly nutty uh, candidates they might have, and it, it seemed that some of the, the vote, what, what were perceived as vulnerable Republicans in red Democrats, sitting Democrats in red states were clearly interesting targets. Are it's too close to if people thought that by now there would be some massive momentum behind all these Republicans. We didn't. We didn't think that. We had a big conversation here uh, uh, back before the, the summer break about what we thought. Most of us thought it was going to be within 52 to 48, one party or the other, and we all acknowledged that there were a bunch of uncertainties, we could, have, we could have a very similar conversation right now. So I think there's nothing about what's going on that, that, that really surprises me. Maybe in an individual race or two, somebody's doing a little better than they thought or a little worse than they thought, but, but there's a lot of uncertainty, and uh, it's still the people who get paid to do this for a living, which is God knows not us, <laughs> it's still too close to call and too early to call. Dan Lipner, considering the only things in the Republican agenda that I, I can that I can figure out based on following what they're doing in the media is hate Obama and Benghazi. Other than that, there's no governing strategy. But Bob Hines, when we look at the trifecta, and, there, and this, this story is, is an absolute great read by uh, Alec Eisenstadt over our friends at Politico. Uh, Alex talks about uh, the trifecta of bad fundraising, uh, underperforming candidates, and just a horrible party brand that is schizophrenic at best. Uh, It seems like those coming together might put the brakes on any sort of strong ramp into the midterms that we were looking at. Well, I I don't expect, and I never have expected, more than uh, I thought in a good year, it would be somewhere between uh, you know eight and twelve members of the house at most. I've never looked at it as being much more than that. I, I'm pleased with the candidates that have been nominated by the Republican Party in the Senate because in every single case, I think the stronger candidate uh, has defeated the Tea Party candidate, and I think that's a plus for the Republican but, Party. But Bob, it, as Alan said, it's going to be nowhere. It's it's going to stay within 52 and 48. I'm not sure who's going to be him. But, Bob, you know, when, when, I mean, this is a money game, what we're talking about. And if there are fundraising issues within the party, doesn't that put Reince Priebus a little bit behind the eight ball as far as waking up and shaking the money tree that he's so famously known for? Well, I'm not, 
I'm not so sure that we're that short of money as, as you you have indicated. I haven't I haven't noticed anybody. I know a few campaigns, and I don't know anybody who's crying poor. Carl Tuvin. Well, first of all, um, I think that this this will be one of the closest elections that we've seen in a long time, and we might not know the outcome until two or three days after the election as far as the House and the Senate are concerned. The, the Democrats have gone out and really gotten uh, uh, good candidates to run in, uh, in red districts. Part of, the, part of the reason why I think some of these races are, are too close to call. Uh, also, uh, if, if the field operation works this time like it did two years ago, uh, it's going to give us a lot of help. Uh, we're probably going to have a lower voter turnout. Republicans usually turn out more in the midterm elections than they do sometimes in the presidentials for some reason. And, uh, uh, you know, the Democrats are now trying to galvanize the African-American vote to, to pull that out and help with, uh, with the election. Also, the Hispanics, uh, too, and that will be very helpful in in, the, in some states. But in, but in the story in the story, Alex talks about Bob Hines uh, that the, the Democrats, in contrast to what happened in 2010 as a midterm, uh, I'm sorry, as an election cycle year, the Democrats could outspend Republicans, and there are some particularly weak. Republican candidates that the Republicans are putting a lot of money into that were considered locks. Uh, a couple of them that they give examples are uh, Congressman uh, Sutherland out of Florida, uh, Congressman Terry out of Nebraska, and uh, Barbara Comstock out of Virginia as three examples of these were locks, but not so much anymore. And if the Democrats throw money at it, could we in fact see a little hemorrhaging of GOP seats? You left out George Spinner out of North Dakota. Oh, yeah, I did leave out George Spinner out of North Dakota. It's always possible. I'll tell you what I think is a bigger play on what might happen in the election. I think that the administration is going to do something with respect to immigration, and I think that will have a hell of a lot more uh, importance to how the election goes than any more money play. And it's not only... uh, Immigration, but it's going to be. Can we pass the budget? I mean, if they can't, no, we won't. And, we'll ever get genuine resolution, right? And, and you know, how close are we going to get to October first on that? So, yes. you know, if they've only got ten days, so they come back next week, we yes. have ten days between now and October first. No, we got well. well yeah. I'm sorry, ten days that they're going to be in session for. Yeah, and, that's they, and, got, and, and they also have the deficit problem. Right, so, and they have the deficit problem. So that could impact a lot of, uh, of different votes. And I, I bring up the border. Because depending on what the president does via executive order could either help or hurt some Democrats and also could help or hurt some Republicans. But, but Alan Moore, when you look at the situation, we talk about the budget here, the Republicans still haven't gotten their way out of the murkiness that was associated with them during the government shutdown. And there's a strong, independent, and slightly Democratic-leaning electorate that still believe that it was the Republicans that caused sequestration and the government shutdown. How does the Republican Party get out of that murkiness? 
by the forgetfulness of the American people. Do they have that big of a short attention span, do you think? It wasn't that big of – this sequestration was pretty short, and it didn't wasn't, was not all that disruptive. It was certainly disruptive to a small group of people, but if you remember, much of government continued to function. Um, it was disruptive and, to the neediest of people, let's be clear. Well, we can argue about that. I, I, I would actually take issue with that, that – that it was because it was it, because it was small in size and duration and a while ago. <laughs> it's not. I, I don't see it being a big uh, a big issue. The really interesting question is how Obamacare plays. Because what's 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 been what what's happened is now that we're a year into this program, still doesn't work very well. As some of the people around this table know, but it's in terms money. of operational. Saving money. Saving money. You were just oh complaining about oh, it. Oh, oh, the no. BBO just no, came out with a report no, 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 saying no, no. it's okay. saving money. No, yeah, that's garbage. But, 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 I mean, it's extraordinarily expensive program. I mean, it's there's there's ways to say it's saving money in terms in terms of of uh, uh, did it cost as much as we thought? No. Are we do we have as many people uh, covered as we thought? No. Um, is it an efficient way to 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 uh, spend money probably not the question but that but that none of that has to do with the politics um, the politics are all about are there a bunch of people helped yes no question about it um, does the anti Obamacare message resonate today like it did a year ago no not even close um, some of the Democratic candidates are saying like Mark Pryor in Arkansas he doesn't say I voted for Obamacare and I'm proud of it He's saying, let me show you uh, what's happening to people here in Arkansas. And he does the little, little quick snippets of people who have coverage now, didn't have it before. And he said, I voted for the law that helped make that happen. And it's, it's, it's not clear how that issue cuts. It seemed pretty clear you know, a year ago, but it's not at all clear now. And that's a big, that's a big unknown. And it's a big unknown for guys like Mitch McConnell in Kentucky and plenty of others in some of these uh, these close races. In Kentucky, Dan Lipner. In Kentucky, where it's arguably the most successful rollout of Obamacare anywhere in the country, but they call it Kentucky Care or whatever it's called. And so, when you if you interview people in Kentucky and say Obamacare, oh, it's awful, but Kentucky Care, that's great. So that's because they poured a little bourbon into us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a little like keep, keep the government out of our business, but don't touch our Medicare and Social Security. Well, there you go. <laughs> right, and that and that's what creates the problem. Now, the real question is is whether or not the the rolling out the Obama GOTV ever get up the vote effort on an off year election, something traditionally Democrats are terrible at. If that Obama machine manages to work, we're going to see some surprises on election day. But Carl Tuvin? The other thing is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Arkansas, and you mentioned that race by versus Cotton. Uh, <clears throat> and you're going to have uh, two people go to Arkansas and campaign hard for prior, and that is former President Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. What a surprise. <clears throat> and uh, they still have a great deal of influence uh, in, in the state and really could boost prior tremendously. And uh, uh, the president is going to go into certain states but not other states. And I'm sure they've mapped out 
a way that, that the president can come out and campaign, but he's not going to campaign in states where in any close it, it states. Be, yeah, any, yeah. the president's going to be invisible in November. Right. With, but he'll be out there. There, he will be, the vice president will be out there. Biden will absolutely be out there. Yeah. And B- Biden is not as toxic as, as the president is. Um, but the keep the one seat, which the little bit of news that broke, unfortunately, not in her favor. Mary Landrieu, who yet again, uh, another senator has, been, has an issue with apparently not truly being a resident of the state where they represent. Um, an amazing unforced error. And seeing how that plays out, the, the, the Landrieu family name has more legs than just her. Exactly. But whether or not she's able to survive this not insignificant gaffe of maintain, truly maintaining her residence in Louisiana uh, could, could actually change that scene. She still has her room in her parents' house. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure her high school trophies are still <laughs> on the walls. And there's this picture of her as a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> She has been. She has been. I have a lot of respect for her, but she lives in a multi-million dollar house on Capitol Hill. So with Luger. Yeah, well, but make no mistake about it. I mean, make no mistake about it. Is Mary Landrieu is as old school political Louisiana as you get, with her brother as the mayor, unexpectedly reelected for a second term, and Mary Landrieu in some sort of dire straits. I would not underestimate the Landrieu political machine, even as a Republican. Vote early and vote often. Plus the fact that days after earmark, she is still managing to get a lot of money to go to universities and other places in her state. So, no, no question about it. But a lot of the political handicappers, Alan Moore, were looking at an 11th seat gain in the House, a wave, if you will, a la Newt Gingrich. We're definitely not there at this point. All three factors, the bad, fun, the bad money raising, the uh, somewhat susceptible candidates, and the bad political brand that the GOP currently carries, not exactly going to get you 11 seats. What does the GOP stand for right now? I mean, other than, again, Benghazi and hating Obama. Well, no, but wait, 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 you're painting with a big brush. I mean, to sit there and say that the GOP is God, guns, and babies every day, 365, I don't think that's fair. I, I mean, what I'd like to see is what do they come out on Monday and Tuesday of next week? They come back. What is their priority? I want to see what Harry Reid says, and I, I want to see what Bader says, and that will demonstrate what we're going to be watching over the next six weeks. Well, I, I would also <laughs> suggest that, that 10 or 11 seat addition in the house is not a wave no it's a ripple but it's not a wave let's remember Newt and the contract yeah. on America was a real thing that's also, a wave a year, years of redistricting away. it was yeah. a long term plan yeah. this is an election yeah. cycle yeah. Carl Tuvin. you know it, it seems to me that in, in some cases that the Republicans are depending on the independent well, independent expenditures from these, these big groups the dark that, money. Uh, that are putting money in, the Cokes, Paul Rove, and his group, oh, or whatever. George Soros, too. Well, I, I understand we have a few <laughs> yeah. people have you, you, being the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, the Hollywood Mafia, <laughs> throwing all kinds of money at this. You can't be serious, Carl. 
Oh, come on. Listen, there'll be big money all over the place, and every, both parties are going to be throwing money all over the place. Oh, make no mistake about it is. But uh, I tell you, the thing I think will have the most impact if it, if it happens, and I think it will, I think the president will do something on immigration. And I think that would be the biggest political activity between now and the election. And I think it will have more impact than the money. But it also seems that, you know, when we look at the Republicans, also looking at the Democrats, uh, Harry Reid has poked a sleeping bear in the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers this past week have had several meetings regarding how they can take out this thorn in the side of their Republican politics uh, and has gotten a lot of uh, support from some big names, some big money, and as well as some moderate Democratic support saying that Harry Reid is a bigger problem than everybody expects as majority leader. But you're not going to knock off Harry until he comes up for re-election. Yeah. So they can keep spending as much money as they want to. It's not, they're not going to knock them off. But, but, but on the opposite, on the opposite. No, but you, you can't knock out Harry Reid. But, Alan Moore, as you've seen, one way of taking out Harry Reid is to make him minority leader instead of majority leader. Well, one way to, one way to reduce his influence and power, of course, is to, uh, is to make him uh, the leader of the minority. And if that were to happen, it would be interesting to see what the Democrats would do. Because there, there's, there's, there's what he and the Democrats would do if they become the minority. The question is... Do the Democrats reelect him to their to be their leader? Does he look at that as an opportunity to say, you know, something? I'm a fighter. I never walk away from a fight. But there's some other there's some family issues, and I'm done. I don't predict that, but it's not a zero probability if, he's not a if the Democrats. Chicken. He's not, and the, and and he's. Very, very fond of his wife, who I think has some health issues, and he's bought a house. Well, he lives in a <laughs> – the man of the people yeah. lives in a penthouse apartment at the Ritz-Carlton, um, but but it's a small one. Oh, yeah. It's a, small, yeah. It's it's a, a junior penthouse. It's a million-dollar one-bedroom. Um, and he and he walks downstairs and hops in his uh, his Senate car with the security. So – so, but but but, out, but he's still connected out, to the people. But out in Nevada, he's got a house that's close. That's now, I think, uh, he's moved closer to some of his relatives. And as we say, he's not that young a guy. And people at some point say, "Is this all I care about? Is this all I'm going to do?" And if uh, I mean, you know, I'm one who thought Pelosi might have left by but, now, and it shows you. How, how good a prognosticator I am. But, but Bob Hines, is Americans for Progress and the Koch brothers enough to get them to do two things? One, elect more Republicans into the Senate and some vulnerable seats that Democrats currently hold. And two, can they spend enough money taking out Harry Reid? Harry Reid ain't leaving, I don't think. I mean, look, but, you know, I think... Uh, my own self would be is looking at someone who admires the Congress and would like to see it work. It would be helpful if there were someone in the Senate who was the leader who was a more amenable to discussion rather than just my way or the highway. He reminds me of Newt Gingrich, quite frankly, and that's not a compliment. Name the, name the actual leaders in the Senate other than people actually in leadership. Yeah, but there I, are no more giants in the Senate anymore. No, but I think I think the including him. 
Yeah, but, but I think but, the deputy, the deputy on the Democratic side, is a reasonable fellow. But it seems that it, it seems well, to me, yeah, yeah, he'd be better. It'll be Schumer versus Durbin, and one or the other, and we yeah. don't. It's not clear who yeah. who would prevail. All right, I think but either one of them would be better than Harry Reid. But Denise Kraft, you know, what we're seeing here is Harry Reid, who just this year, earlier part of this year, launched a new strategy putting names and faces of the Republican Party, quote-unquote, as being the Koch brothers and that sort. It seems to have backfired even to the criticism of some Democrats saying, hey, look, all you're doing is forcing them to put even more money into the cycle, making this an even more difficult race to keep you as majority leader. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, but that's natural. You piss somebody off, they're going to cost money trying to get rid of you. I mean, that, that's fine. The, the question is going to be, will the Democrats hold, or will the or will Republicans stay? And God help you, by the way, if the Republicans stay, because then you got problems. Because then you actually have to rule both the House and the Senate, and then you have to play with the House. Right. So if you take the Senate, have at it. Let Quick, me, one, one, one minute. We, we're going. Thirty seconds, all I need. Uh, John Boehner has recently been a little bit more successful in getting some of the Tea Party people to move a little bit. They had a Democratic majority in the Senate. I think he would be able to sit down with his caucus and say, look, you idiots, this is a shot. We have a chance. Why don't we act like legislators? Correct. It would be interesting to see if, if it would happen. But it, he couldn't do that if he spoke with the Republicans took the Senate. I think you could. No, I think if Republicans take the Senate... I well, think what you said was Democratic majority, but you met no, Republican, Republican majority. No, no. Senate. Republican what I'm saying is if the Republicans win the Senate in the House, Boehner is going to have a better chance of getting the Tea Party people to pay attention to well, it. Well, no, I don't know if it would happen or not. All evidence is the Senate's a huge problem no matter who's in charge because there's going to be a small majority of the people. Yeah, it's going to be 52 at the most. Yeah, agreed. Well, we're going to keep an eye on that, but... By the way, to your Harry, anti-Harry Reid campaign, I brought that story up for you. Congratulations, Alan Moore. You've infiltrated the moderator's seat. You should give, you should give Harry the credit. I should. I should. Harry is Harry, the one who earned this. So yeah, Harry does it upon himself. With that, we've got seven minutes left. It's time for my very abbreviated and very quick version of Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest innuendo and buzz that we didn't cover on the show today. Bob Hines, tell me a story real quick. Very quickly. It's what I said earlier. Uh, the only thing the Democrats have going for them right now is they need to get some of their base out. It's a tough time for them, usually in a mid-election year. I think the president will push very difficult, hard, and they do it all he can administratively to move the immigration needle. Interesting. Carl Tubin, 30 seconds, quickly. Paul uh, Krugman has an article. Health spending has slowed sharply. Uh, below projections in, uh, in just a few years. Uh, this is Hawthorne Medicare, uh, which is spending about $1,000 less than beneficiary uh, than the Congressional Budget Office projected four years ago. Very good. Denise Kraft, tell me a story real quick. Senators McCaskill and Gillibrand are saying thank you very much to former president of George Washington University, Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, for opening his mouth and inserting a rather large foot last week when he said that rape, and I'm going to quote him, can be blamed on girls who don't know how to drink. When asked later if he was going to apologize, he said, no, I'm just merely explaining the situation. Thank you, Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, for opening your mouth and, again, inserting your foot. That will reignite the debate that is ongoing right now concerning race and whether or not we should be 
looking at that issue. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, so we've we've all been watching and sometimes commenting on the uh, the trial of Governor Bob McConnell uh, uh, McDonald in in Virginia. The case went to the jury. The marriage has been demolished in public eye, um, uh, and and so have the uh, loose ethics rules of the state of Virginia. I predict that the that the, the, the McDonald's will be uh, acquitted. It's, believe me, I'm not betting any, any significant money on this, uh, but that, that, that his political career is ruined, their marriage is destroyed, and Virginia will join the modern times with some better, tougher ethics rules. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Uh, I'm going to go straight, straight and simple. Nationals are going to be in the World Series this year. Against the Orioles. Both predictions. Ballsy. Stupid, but ballsy. Uh, uh, Prime Minister David Cameron. We were talking about David Cameron earlier. Prime Minister David David Cameron's got a big problem on his hands. It is the exodus of the Conservative Party to the new United Kingdom Independence Party, which is giving a, a marginal coalition government that is being held together by David Cameron in, uh, in Whitehall, but it is also a problematic situation for the Tories. The UKIP program is taking hold. A lot of moderates are starting to look at the conservatives as a moderate, the Tories as a moderate, and the UKIP as the true conservative party, giving Prime Minister David Cameron a little bit of an edge, but something that it's questionable he's going to be able to hold on power in the next election cycle coming up here fairly shortly. Wow, we did that with time to spare. I'm impressed. Any shout-outs? Denise Krepp, you got a shout-out. Like you're running for something? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I am. Yeah, I'm a political – I don't know. That was like a couple years ago. No, I'm running for uh, ANC. Tell everybody that doesn't live in Washington, D.C. what that is. An advisory neighborhood commissioner. So for the first time in my life, I'm on the ballot. And, oh, my goodness, this has been a very interesting process. And folks, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. It doesn't matter what you're voting for. Get out and vote. You're out of your mind. Does this mean we're going to give free airtime to our opponent now? Yeah. Uh, Oh, theoretically, equal time. No, because we're not regulated by the FCC. Screw that noise. Hey, by the way, we want to give a special shout-out to Alan's family, the latest addition to... We've got a new grandson out in California, born last Thursday, and a new daughter-in-law because uh, my stepson got married on Saturday. Big week. Congratulations. 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 Uh, Carl? And and I'll bet that new grandson has already already been... He's already, he's already registered he's as a Republican and a member of the Executive Committee out in California. Right, Carl Thuvin. Not only is Denise running, but her husband is running for Congress. Yes. Yes. As, a, as an independent. Yes. Yes, my husband is. So it is quite a political family we have. No, you guys are out of your mind. With that, on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Thuvin, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner. Uh, Congressman Al, who couldn't join us tonight, Congressman, if you're listening, which we know he's not, uh, if you are listening, Congressman Al, we want you back next week. Hope you feel better. 
Uh, I am your moderator and your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back here next week from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on Facebook at Backroom Politics. And you can join us on our website and listen to us live or download us on iTunes, which you can get as a streaming RSS feed. You can download all previous broadcasts of Backroom Politics as an iTunes podcast. And you can also email me, justin at backroompolitics.org, with any questions or concerns. With that, we will see you live here from Shelley's Backroom next Tuesday. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. Thank you.